0: Once a week we like to watch a movie, we don't like to go to movies, we like to watch a good movie at home and sometimes it happens that we're watching even a good movie and the movie turns out to be longer than we thought it would be or we turn out to be sleepier than we thought we were or there's a crying child that kind of interrupts and we have to stop the movie halfway through and save the rest of it for another night. And I don't know if that ever happens to you. If it does, then maybe it works out better for you than it does for us. But it never works out well for me. And the reason it doesn't work out well for me is because the second half of the movie is never as good as the first part was. Because movies, I'm not talking about miniseries or something like that, but a movie that was intended to be viewed in one sitting is always best when viewed in one sitting. When you pause it halfway through and try to pick it up later, you always lose something. Because movies are designed to draw you into the story with character development and plot development. And when you put a break in the right in the middle of it, then sometimes it just doesn't have the same effect. I hope that's not going to be the effect that we have this morning in our passage. Because as you remember, last time we were supposed to work through this whole passage in one sitting, and it didn't work out that way. It turned out to be a little longer than... We'd hoped it would, and so we had to push pause halfway through, and we'll pick up there today. We'll just spend a few moments just to kind of remember what was happening in the passage. We're in Acts 15, by the way, and we'll spend a few moments just to remind ourselves of what was happening in the passage up until this point, and then we'll pick up from there and move on. There has been this big church powwow. The Apostle Apostle Paul and the, the missionary Barnabas, they've come back from their first missionary journey back to the church in Antioch, and they have remained there teaching and preaching the believers there in the Antioch church. And while they were doing so, some Jewish Christians from Jerusalem came up to Antioch and have begun teaching this false teaching that in essence, you must become a Jew in order to be saved. Jesus was the Messiah to the Jews. And so therefore, in order for you to have salvation in Jesus, you must be one of His people. You must become a Jew. And so Paul and Barnabas have opposed this teaching And the issue didn't go away, it grew and it grew and so finally it's so large now that the church has this big powwow in Jerusalem and Paul and Barnabas go down to Jerusalem as well as some other elders of the church, churches I should say, and they all meet here in Jerusalem and they have this big conference called the Jerusalem Council and the whole purpose is to decide this issue of the Gentiles. Can a Gentile be saved or can only Jews be saved? Should we be telling Gentiles to become Jews so you can believe upon Jesus, or should we be telling Gentiles to simply believe upon Jesus? So they meet here in Jerusalem. Paul stands up and he tells of all the things that God has done through him, the mighty works that God has done at his hands, and how he's been preaching to the Gentiles, and the Gentiles have have been, been saved. And the party of the Pharisees, they stand up and they tell their story. They say you cannot be saved. Jesus was the Messiah to the Jews, and so Gentiles must first be circumcised and follow the law and the traditions of the Jewish people, and then they can believe upon Jesus and be saved. And then you remember Peter stands up. Peter stands up and reminds everybody of what happened at Cornelius' house, of how the Holy Spirit was given to those uncircumcised Gentiles who believed upon Jesus in Cornelius' home. And then James stands up. James is the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He is the leader of this meeting. And so he stands up. Remember who James was? He was the half-brother of Jesus. And he wrote the epistle of James. It was that James. And he was, if you remember, a person, a Jewish Christian, who was very passionate about keeping the law, even after we became Christians. And so he stands up. This person who has this sort of, a, of a inclination towards the law, he stands up to say... It's not what I want, brothers, but it's what the Holy Spirit wants. And the Holy Spirit has determined that no, Gentiles do not need to become Jews in order to be saved. They simply need to believe upon Jesus. And you remember how he clarifies all of that? He grounds that in Scripture because Scripture is the final authority. It's not the experience of Paul or the experience of Peter or the giving of the Holy Spirit. It's not any of those things. It is Scripture that is the final authority. So he goes back to the Word of God and says... If this is true, then it will be validated, it will be confirmed in the Word of God, and so, and so it is. He quotes from the prophet Amos. And then he gives his decision, which is where we, um, where we left off, this decision to write this letter to the churches and give them four requirements, four requirements, four prohibitions, so to speak, for the Gentile Christians, specifically in Antioch, but also the other Christians that are in other Gentile areas as well. And that's where we left off last time with this letter with the four prohibitions. We talked about the first two of them because the first two were rather uh, simple and rather straightforward. They were to abstain from idolatry and to abstain from sexual immorality. And we thought about that for a minute last week and we determined, well, of course, what James is is not saying, he's not saying these are the only things that you must do in order to follow Christ. There's lots of things that Christians must abstain from in order to to be Christ's followers. But what he's saying is, the culture in which you live is particularly influenced, is particularly immersed in these two sins. The sin of idolatry, the, the culture of Antioch was covered up in idolatry, and the sin of sexual promiscuity. And so James is saying to them, these are two sins which are particularly prevalent all around you. And so not that this is the only thing that you must do, but these are two things that you must be particularly guarded against. And we look to the the testimony of Scripture, and we saw how Scripture confirms for us that God understands how Christians can be influenced by our culture around us. Your culture around you can't make you sin, but it can sure influence you in certain ways. We look to the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 6, where he says in verse 5, Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among an unclean people. So scripture recognizes that the people around us don't make us sin, but they can influence us in certain ways. And so we apply that to our modern life today to say the culture around you has certain sins that it's particularly immersed in, and you must recognize those and be especially guarded against those sins which are most prevalent around you. So those were the first two of the prohibitions. The other two were a little bit more uh, in depth, or or um, perhaps um, confusing to deal with, and so we put those off until today, and that's where we'll pick up. Let's pick up here in verse 19, and let's reread the decision that James announced from verse 19. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So we talked about the first two prohibitions, the prohibition against idolatry and sexual immorality. Now let's talk about the other two prohibitions, which are really just one prohibition. The uh, prohibition against eating meat that has been strangled or eating meat that has blood still remaining in it. And so, um, those are really the same prohibition because meat that is strangled, or an animal that is strangled, has not had the opportunity for all the blood to be uh, drained out of the animal. And so, the meat from that animal will have blood still remaining in it. So, in essence, the two prohibitions are one prohibition that they give to the church. But, here's the rub. The rub is, where did that prohibition come from? It came from... The Jewish dietary laws. Which was exactly what James just declared that they will not trouble the Antioch Christians with. They don't have to be circumcised. And remember we said last week that that circumcision is is kind of a code word for following the Jewish laws and the Jewish traditions. And so we're not going to trouble them with that, but here's one part of it that we will trouble them with. So that can be a little bit confusing. Why does James sort of go back on this one prohibition, but not the others? Jewish people found eating meat with blood to be very offensive because they were told not to do that. The law of God told them not to do that. Um, but there were lots of other things that they found offensive as well. So why this one particular thing? And I think that we can make sense of it when we look to what James' reasons was. Because he goes ahead and gives his reason for these prohibitions. In verse 21, he spells it out. He says, For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in synagogues. So there's the reason that James gives. The reason for us to write to you Antioch Christians and tell you that you are to refrain from the eating of meat with blood in it is because in every city, Moses has those who proclaim Him from the synagogues. Or in other words, you have Jews all around you. There are Jews in Antioch, there are synagogues in Antioch, and so your neighbors there in Antioch are are Jews. And so what James is teaching the church here, what he's requiring of them, is something that is not different from what the New Testament requires of us in other places. You see, when it comes to the ceremonial laws of Judaism, the sacrificial laws, the dietary laws. The New Testament teaches us that we as New Covenant Christians have freedom from that. The reason we have freedom from that is not because God has done away with those things, but because Jesus Christ has fulfilled them and continues to fulfill them on our behalf. Jesus said, I didn't come to do away with the law. Not one jot or tittle of the law. But I came to fulfill the law. And so, all of those ceremonial, sacrificial laws, we have freedom from those. Not because God said, oh, those were bad. And those were a bad idea. I wish I'd never come up with those. But because Jesus Christ fulfills them for us on our behalf. So therefore, we have freedom from the law in that regard. And this is what James says to the Gentile Christians. Our Holy Spirit inspired decision is that you Antioch Christians have freedom from the Jewish law. But why this one particular part that he says that they don't have freedom from? And that has to do with the New Testament's teaching about that freedom that we have in Christ that I just mentioned. The freedom that we have, the freedom that Christ brings us is a freedom that must always be checked by love. There's several places that the New Testament deals with this. One of the places is 1 Corinthians chapter 8. You're probably familiar with this. You may want to flip over to 1 Corinthians 8. In 1 Corinthians 8, the issue is not eating meat that has blood in it. But in 1 Corinthians 8, the issue is meat that has been eating meat that has been sacrificed to an idol. So in the ancient world, there were all these idols and they would sacrifice animals to these, these idols. Well. From a logistical standpoint, that leaves them with a problem, or at least a question. And the question was, what do you do with the animal after you've sacrificed it to an idol? You just throw it out? And they didn't do that. What they would do was take the, the meat from the animal that had been sacrificed to an idol, and they would sell it at the market at a discounted price, because it had already been used to be sacrificed, and so we don't want to throw it away, but we will give you a discount. Here's a discounted meat that's been offered to an idol. And so the question for the Corinthian Christians was, how do Christians think about that? Is it okay for a Christian to buy that meat and eat it? Because it has been offered to a pagan idol. And so how am I to properly think through that? And so this is what Paul answers. In 1 Corinthians 8 verse 1, he says, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. There's the idea of love. What I'm about to tell you is, love trumps freedom. In verse 4, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there's no God but one. In other words, these idols that the food has been sacrificed to, they don't exist. They're not real. And so, food that has been sacrificed to nothing is not any different than food that has not been sacrificed to nothing. And so so Paul says, we know this. But then verse 7, he says, however, not everybody knows that. Not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former associations with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. And their conscience being weak is defiled. So in other words... You know, brothers, that an idol is nothing, and so food offered to that idol is no different than food that wasn't offered to that idol. But not everybody understands that. And the one who doesn't understand that then believes that it is wrong to eat that meat that has been offered to an idol because they don't have, their faith is weak, their knowledge is weak. And so if they were to eat that meat offered to an idol, believing it to be wrong, they would then sin. So he says, verse 8, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat it and no better off if we do eat it. It makes no difference, says Paul. But take care that this this right of yours or this freedom of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating eating an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. So what Paul just said was, you know that an idol is nothing. Food offered to that idol is no different than food that's not offered. But if someone, a brother, a a fellow Christian who is weak in their knowledge, weak in their understanding, weak in their faith, or if an unbeliever who thinks that those idols really are real, if they see you doing what they think is wrong and they are then encouraged to do that when they know it's wrong or they believe it to be wrong, Paul says you've sinned against them. In other words, your freedom is trumped by love and concern for others. Paul teaches a similar thing over in Romans chapter 14. In Romans chapter 14, he expands it just a little bit. And he says this in uh, verse, verse 1, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, For God has welcomed him. For who are you to pass judgment on others? And then down in verse 13, he goes on to say, Therefore let us not pass judgment on one another any longer but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing, nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. If your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, you do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. And he goes on to expand on that. So what Paul says there is essentially the same thing he said to the Corinthians, He says, if someone in their conscience believes something to be evil, and yet they do it, and they do it, then that's a sin for them. But, Paul says, we know that nothing in and of itself is good or bad. It's what you do with it. But if a weaker brother does not understand that, and you help to encourage that weaker brother to to sin against their own conscience, then you've sinned against them. Or in other words, Your freedom in Christ is trumped by love and concern for others. You follow what Paul's saying so far? Now now back to uh, Acts 15. The same sort of thing is taking place here. James says to the Antioch Christians, you are free, brothers, from the Jewish dietary laws, and you're free from being circumcised and all those sorts of things, but you have Jews living all around you. And they are deeply offended by people who eat meat with blood in it. And so although you are free to partake of that, your freedom in Christ must be checked by your love and your concern for Jewish believers in Christ who still believe that to be wrong, or Jewish unbelievers who are still offended by seeing Christians eating so freely from meat that has blood in it. You follow the logic here? Tons and tons of application for us in our modern world, isn't it? One of probably the most, um, one of the, maybe the, the clearest application would be in the consumption of alcohol. Scripture never prohibits the Christian from consuming alcohol. The Scriptures condemn the sin of drunkenness on a regular basis. But Scripture never prohibits the Christian from consuming alcohol. In fact, the overwhelming stance that Scripture takes towards alcohol is... Positive, right? Wine gladdens the heart. Paul says to Timothy, have some wine with your water. Don't just drink water. So the opinion of Scripture of wine and strong drink is a positive one. And the Bible doesn't contradict itself, folks. So therefore, the the Christian has freedom to engage in that, but the freedom is always trumped or checked by love and concern for others. And so therefore... If someone, either another believer or an unbeliever, believes that to be wrong, and you engaging in your freedom that you have in Christ, you cause them to stumble, you encourage them to do what they think is wrong, or they see another Christian whom they respect doing what they believe to be wrong, although you know it not to be, then the Scriptures teach us that you've sinned because you have used your freedom in Christ as a stumbling block for someone who's weaker in their knowledge or weaker in their faith. We see this sort of thing all over the place. In the way we dress, there's a hundred applications for this. The Christian has tremendous freedom in the gospel, but that freedom is always checked or is always trumped by our love and our concern for weaker Christians or and for non-believers. Now, let me just take a moment and apply this to your life. Um, We see here a tremendous compromise, don't we? That's what we started out last week talking about compromise. And what this passage has shown us is the beauty of compromise and non-compromise. Because notice what the church has done here. They have refused to compromise on the essentials of their faith. They've refused to compromise on the Gospel. You must not submit to circumcision in order to be saved. You do not have to follow the law of Judaism in order to be saved. Salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. They will not compromise on that. But on what is secondary? They are very willing to compromise. Love provokes them to compromise on that which is not eternally significant. Is it eternally significant if someone eats meat with blood in it or not? No, it's not. And so the church is willing to compromise on those things that are not of importance, fundamental importance to the gospel. They're willing to compromise on those things out of love. And so we see here the position that the Christian is to take. On those matters pertaining to the fundamentals of the gospel, on those matters pertaining to the fundamentals of the gospel, the church will not compromise. But on those things which are not fundamental to the gospel, the church places love and concern for lost people on a higher priority. And I think that that is a guide for you in your life today. For example, this is, I think it's a guide for you in your dealings with your relationships with other believers who are following Christ in their life in a different tradition than yours. I hope we all have those friends in our lives that are followers of Christ, yet they follow Christ in a different tradition. I hope that all your friends aren't good Southern Baptists. right? And so in our relationships with them, we have a lot to disagree on, don't we? We see a lot of things differently. And with those things, those things that aren't fundamental to the Gospel, that are not essential to the Gospel, We're quick to compromise, aren't we? That's the example that we're given here. For example, um, I meet every Thursday morning with a group of pastors, six pastors. We meet for the specific purpose of revival prayer, praying for revival every Thursday morning. These six pastors, we represent five different denominations. Now, five different denominations of pastors in the same room, there's a whole lot for us to disagree about, isn't there? But there's also a whole lot for us to agree on. We agree on the fundamentals of the gospel. We agree on the sinfulness of man. We agree on the exclusivity of Christ. We agree on the virgin birth of Jesus, the sinless life of Jesus. We agree on the perfect atonement on the cross. We agree on salvation by grace alone through faith alone. We agree on the resurrection. We agree on the second coming. Jesus is coming back to set up His kingdom. We agree on the absolute authority of God's Word. We agree on the complete and utter inerrancy of God's Word. We agree on all those things and we will not compromise on those. Yet there's a lot of other things that we don't agree on. And we're quick to compromise on those. Because you know what? Those things are not eternally significant. Those things are not ultimately significant. And being secondary to the gospel, love compels us to be quick to compromise on those things. I think this is the example that we're given here in our relationships with other believers who follow Christ in a different tradition than ours. But there's also application for us for those people in our lives that are unbelievers and do not follow Christ at all. I hope that you also have those in your life as well. When we relate to unbelievers, this passage, I believe, also gives us guidance in that area as well. Because, do you know what unbelievers tend to do a lot of? They tend to sin. Don't they? And they tend to sin in some very open, very flagrant sort of ways. You know, it's not that Christians don't sin, but it's more that Christians are much better at hiding their sins, right? Our sins aren't always as obvious as the sins of just a lost person, right? And so these unbelievers, they sin openly. The the, the things they say, the things they do, right? And there's a reason for that. You know what the reason is? They don't know Jesus. That's kind of why they do that. Because they don't know Jesus. But you ever know those Christians, maybe you are one, you ever know those Christians who wear their morality on their sleeve and are just so offended at every sin that unbelievers do? I can't believe they said that. Can you believe they said that? I can't believe that they watched that. I can't believe that family doesn't ever go to church. Not even on Christmas. You know Christians like that? That wear their morality on their sleeves and are pleased to be offended by the sin around them. Don't get me wrong, folks. I'm not saying we compromise with sin. I'm not saying we condone sin. What I'm saying is we do not build walls between ourselves and unbelievers based on their sin. Because you know what happens in the mind and in the heart of an unbeliever as Christians are just so offended by the words that come out of their mouth or the things that they may do for entertainment or you know what happens in the heart of an unbeliever when Christians treat them that way? This person is repulsed by me and why would why would I want a relationship with someone who's repulsed by me? Again, I'm not saying we condone sin. What I'm saying is simply this. We must love the sinner more than we hate their sin. We must love the sinner more than we hate their sin. And so often, I think that Christians, especially in our culture, we hate the sin more than we love the sinner. And we're more interested in putting the sinner in his place rather than loving him into a relationship with Christ. I think that's the example that we're shown here. The Antioch Christians were not to compromise on the Gospel, but they were to be quick to say, we love the lost Jews around us more than we hate their legalism. And I think a whole lot of Christians have it backwards today. That we hate sin, more than we love sinners. You want a biblical example of this? Jesus Christ. Do you think for one minute that Jesus was not repulsed by the sin of adultery that was crumpled at His feet? Do you think for one minute that the Son of God was not offended by the prostitution of Mary Magdalene? Or can we fathom that the perfect Son of God hung on a cross beside such a sinner and was not offended in his soul by the sin that that consumed him? Of course he was. But he loved the sinner more than he hated their sin. That's why he was criticized so much. This man loves sinners, this man eats with them, this man goes to their house. He goes to the houses of prostitutes, of tax collectors and sinners. Can you believe that? Because He loves the sinner more than He hates their sin. I think Acts 15 is an example for us to follow in that way, that we are to love sinners more than we hate their sin. And so then beginning verse 22 down through verse 35, they write this letter and they take it. We read this last time so I won't go back through this, but they take the letter. In the letter they say, "Um, here's... Our requirements for you. Here's our decision. Um, By the way, those people who came teaching these other things, these false teachings, they weren't from us. We didn't send them to you. But here's the decision of the council. The the, uh, Antioch Christians receive this and they rejoice. They rejoice, first of all, because they are very happy to have their freedoms in Christ checked out of love for their Jewish neighbors because they love their Jewish neighbors there so they're very happy they rejoice at that they also rejoice because they have not been subjected to the law of Judaism they rejoice because their salvation is truly salvation by grace alone and they don't have to follow these rules or these laws in order for them to be saved. so they rejoice in all that Paul and Barnabas stay there in Antioch and they uh, remain there preaching the word with many others also now let's pick up in verse 36 and after some days Paul said to Barnabas let's return and visit the brothers and in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with him John, called Mark, but Paul thought it best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. So there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord, And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So, we have just read of one of the greatest compromises of love that we find in Scripture. And immediately after that, we see Christians that can't get along. How ironic. How sadly ironic. That as soon as the church has elevated love for lost people above their preferences. Right after that, we see Christians who can't get along and must separate. So we may be familiar, I think probably most of us are familiar with this issue with Mark. Mark, also known as John Mark, left with them with Paul and Barnabas when they left for the first missionary journey. If we flip back to chapter 13, verse 13, um, Mark, John, also known as John, was with them when they go to Cyprus. But then verse 13 of chapter 13 says, Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga Pamphylia, and John, a.k.a. John Mark, left them and returned to Jerusalem. Now, we're never told why. But it's clear from Paul's reaction that in Paul's opinion, Mark's reason for leaving and going back to Jerusalem was not a good one. It wasn't that Mark's mom got sick and he had to go back and care for her. It wasn't that that they ran out of money and Mark had to go back and raise some more funds. It was clear from Paul's reaction that Mark's returning to Jerusalem was a failure on his part. He failed to follow through in the mission. We don't know why. We don't know what came up. But we do know how Paul looked at this. Paul looked at this as a withdrawing, as a failure on John Mark's part. So John Mark goes back to... Jerusalem, and now they're setting out on their second missionary journey, and Barnabas wants Mark to come with him. And Paul is dead set against it. Now we should also understand that Mark was Barnabas' cousin. We see that over in Colossians 4, verse 10, where we're told that Barnabas and Mark were cousins. And we know how that works, don't we? Family, earthly family, those bonds are pretty strong. We're from the south, right? We know family's important. And so Cousin Barnabas is getting ready to go back out and Cousin Mark wants to go with Barnabas. And so Barnabas, of course being the encourager, Barnabas the encourager, he wants Mark, Cousin Mark, to come with him and Paul is dead set against it. Now, people come down all over the place on this one. And probably you yourself have an opinion of who was right and who was wrong. Some people come down on Paul's side and they say, well, clearly... Mark failed the first time out. And, a, and someone who withdrew, someone who put their hand to the plow and looked back, they're not worthy for another chance. And so Paul was right. You can't have a liability on the mission field. And Mark is a liability. He's proved himself unreliable before. Barnabas was wrong to not submit to Paul's authority, Paul's leadership here. And so Paul was right in this way. Right? There's people that come down on that side. There's others that come down on the other side and they say, Paul really should have understood that people can fail and people do fail and they need a second chance. God is the God of second chances. Mark was young at this point in his life. This is the first time anybody's ever gone on a mission trip and people really didn't know what it was about or what to expect. So have a little understanding, Paul. And then they point to the fact that Paul and Mark were eventually reconciled and they say, see, Paul should have submitted to Barnabas' insight here, and he should have been reconciled with Mark and given Mark another chance. People come down on both sides there. And you probably have your own opinion of which was, which was right and which was wrong. But here's what I want us to see in the passage. That's not the point. The point is never who was right or who was wrong. Because notice how careful Luke is to never show his cards. Luke knew exactly what happened. Didn't he? And he never lets on to what happened or who was in the wrong and who was in the right. Instead, the picture he paints is a picture that it really doesn't matter who was in the wrong or who was in the right because there's a far bigger lesson for us to see here. And from this teaching, I think that we have three points of application, three points of teaching to glean from this issue that came up between Paul and and Mark, and the first is this. See how quickly it is that the church is divided. Just see how quickly and how easily, if you want to put it that way, how easily the church is divided. And notice what divided the church. It wasn't doctrine. They worked all that out. For a while, Barnabas was on a different page from Paul on doctrine. Remember in Galatians 2, where we read last week, Peter comes up and he even convinced Barnabas to turn against Paul. But they had worked all that out. They were on the same page doctrinally. So it wasn't doctrine that separated them. It was preferences. Barnabas prefers Mark. Paul prefers no Mark. And that was what separated them. Isn't that the the truth today? Isn't it that that most church splits, most divisions in the church come about not from doctrinal differences, but from preferences? How many churches do you know of that have split over doctrinal differences? Maybe some people in the church started to develop a different understanding of of the roles of women in ministry or, or the meaning of baptism, right? It happens. I'm not saying that never happens. That happens. But far more times we see something like this. A church split over the color of the carpet. Or of, the, of pews or chairs in the sanctuary. Or the style of music. Or the order of the service. Preferences. That's what divides God's people more often than not. The enemy will divide God's people any way he can. And I think that he has seen that the most effective way of dividing His people is not over what matters, but over what doesn't matter at all. Preferences. So recognize that. That God's people are easily divided over preferences. You know what? My preferences probably are different from some of yours. Your preferences are, are probably different from some of mine. And that's okay. Recognize this, that is exactly what they are preferences. And never, resolve today never to allow preferences to divide the body of Christ. That's the first thing I think that we see. But the second thing that we see is that God overcomes that. God overcomes the division that comes about by preferences. Take a look at verse 39. Verse 39, Barnabas went with them and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So, what came about from this separation of Paul and Barnabas? What came about was, God doubled his missions force. One mission team turned into two missions teams. God overcame the sinful choices of Paul and Barnabas. Because you know what? I'm inclined to believe that both Barnabas and Paul were wrong. I'm inclined to believe that they both sinned by not being reconciled. And God overcame their sinful choices to bring good out of the bad that they had done. And that is the way that our God consistently works. God consistently overcomes the sin of man to bring good out of that sin. Who's heard of Chuck Colson? You guys probably have heard of Chuck Colson or Charles Colson. He passed away about the same time last year. Chuck Colson was special counsel to President Richard Nixon from 1969 to 1973. If you know anything about those years, you know that one thing that took place in that period period of time was Watergate. And Richard Nixon was up to his eyeballs in Watergate. He was heavily involved in the wiretapping and the secret tapes and all that sort of thing and the cover-up that went on. He was heavily involved in all of that. And Charles, or Chuck Colson was the first person in the Nixon administration to be, uh, convict, to be uh, charged and brought to trial and convicted. He was the first person to do time. In 1974, Chuck Colson did seven months in a federal prison for his involvement in Watergate. But before he began his prison sentence in 1974... In 1973, Chuck Colson experienced a radical midlife conversion to Christ. And then he goes and he serves seven months in prison and that experience changed him forever. He was given a vision of what God would have him do for his life and that vision revolved around prisons. And he comes out of prison in 1974 and he forms an organization called Prison Fellowship Today, Prison Fellowship has grown to an international organization. I think that they're in nearly every country on the planet. And they go into the toughest prisons in the world. International prisons that are known as torture houses. Places of incredibly inhumane treatment of people. And they go into these places with the Gospel. And they, they transform prisons with the Gospel. Incredible stories of, of prisons that are um, international places of horror that have been transformed by the Gospel. And so do you see what God did? He took Chuck Colson's sin and turned it into a work of the kingdom. Was it right what Colson did in Watergate? Of course not. But God took His bad decisions, His sinful decisions, and spun them on their head to use them for His kingdom. And that is what God consistently does. Think of Joseph. Was it right when his brothers threw him into a well and sold him into slavery? Was it right when Potiphar's wife lied about him and accused him of rape? No. But God takes the sin of man and He spins it on its head and uses it for His kingdom. God overcomes. The final word in the kingdom of God is not our sin. Your sinful choices are not the final word if you are a follower of Christ. The final word is what God will take and do with your sinful choices. Now the last application that I want us to see in this is I want us to think for a moment about Mark. Mark goes to Antioch. Keep in mind, when he left Paul and Barnabas, he didn't return to Antioch, he returned to Jerusalem. So he has to leave Jerusalem and go to Antioch and ask Paul if he can go on this journey. That took courage. That took humility. Mark does this. And we know that Mark and Paul are later reconciled. If we look ahead to Paul's last letter that he wrote, 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul says he says to Timothy, come and bring Mark, because Mark is helpful to me, to me in my ministry. So they were reconciled. And of course we know that Mark goes on to write the Gospel of Mark. And so what we see in all that is we see what God does with a failure. Some of you are Mark. Some of you have failed. God has placed some sort of a call on your life. Maybe it was for something big. Maybe it was for something not so big. And you failed. And you now have resolved yourself to live a life of muted service to God. Because you feel as though since you failed in this thing that God had for you, then certainly God doesn't want anything like that from me again. Certainly I've proven myself to not be cut out for that. And so we'll just sort of sit back in the shadows. And some of you need to learn from the experience of Mark that God uses failures. In fact, that is the only thing that God uses. God only uses failures. You know that if God looked for perfect people to do His work, then you wouldn't have a pastor, you wouldn't have anybody leading music, you wouldn't have anybody playing piano, you wouldn't have anybody teaching Sunday school, you wouldn't have anybody serving as a deacon. If God only used perfect people, then God would use no one outside of His Son. But instead, God is not looking for success stories. You know that God is not looking for successful Christians. He's looking for broken Christians who have seen and who have who get it that it is not about my success or my strength or my power. It is about me yielding to the power of God. That's what Paul means when he says in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7 that God has placed His treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to man. God is not looking for strong Christians. He's looking for very weak Christians. Weak Christians who know that they're weak Christians and who know how dependent they are upon God because that is how His power is displayed. His power was displayed through Mark who was a failure. And He seeks to display His power through other failures as well.